I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. We're very pleased to have as our guest authors Edgar Carrot and Naomi Alderman. Um, Edgar Carrot's short fiction has led uh, Clive James to call him one of the most important writers alive. Salman Rushdie is the voice of the next generation and the New York Times as a genius. Um, he's here to read from and talk about his latest book, which is a memoir, uh, The Seven Good Years. Uh, in conversation with that girl will be Naomi Alderman, whose latest book, Liar's Gospel, was selected by Hilary Mantel in The Guardian as one of her books of the year and is a visceral retelling of the life of Jesus. We now just need to put our hands together to welcome our two guest speakers. Well, it's a tremendous honour and pleasure to be here with you tonight, Edgar. Um, we have already heard the many different people saying how brilliant you are, and indeed you are. You, you know that they, they always give this uh, New York Times quote, you know, that, and they, I think that the full sentence uh, is Edgar Carrot is a genius, but this is undoubtedly his worst book ever. <laughs> 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 Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not one of those, Edgar Carrot uh, is dot, 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 a genius, where there's a not in there that's yeah. like missing. Almost, yeah. <laughs> <but>. um, <laughs> however, I, you, you are a genius, it's okay. I would love you to read for us, first of all, if that's okay. Um, this is a, The Seven Good Years is a set of memoir pieces about your life, and I think you're going to read us uh, a piece set in a taxi. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I must say that, you know, I think almost all the important things that happened to me in my life happened in a taxi, you know? <laughs> if I would have been a better driver, I think my, my life would have looked <laughs> differently. Uh, so if you don't mind, I, I stand when I read. It's, it, I'm a little guy, so it's not a big difference. It just, it's just that reading in English kind of stresses me, so if I stand up, it will look more natural. What does the man say? The minute we got into the taxi, I had a bit bad feeling. And it wasn't because the driver impatiently asked me to buckle the kid's safety belt in the back seat after I'd already done so or because he muttered something that sounded like a curse when I said we wanted to go to Ramat Gan. I take a lot of taxis, so I'm used to the bad tempers, the impatience, the armpit sweat stains, but there was something about the way that the driver spoke, something half violent and half on the verge of tears that made me uncomfortable. Lev was almost four then, and we were on our way to grandma's. Unlike me, he couldn't have cared less about the driver, and focused mainly on the tall, ugly building that kept smiling at him along the way. He sang Yellow Submarine quietly to himself with words he made up that sounded almost like English, and waved his short legs in the air to the rhythm. At one point, his right, right sandal hit the taxi's plastic ashtray, knocking it onto the floor. Except for the chewing gum wrapper, it was empty, so no trash was spilled, I had already bent to pick it up when the driver suddenly braked, turned around, and with his face really close to my three-year-old son's, began screaming, You stupid kid, you broke my car, you idiot. Hey, are you crazy or something? I shouted at the driver, yelling at the three-year-old because of a piece of plastic. Turn around and start driving, or I swear next week you'll be shaving corpses in the Abu Kabir morgue because you won't be driving any public vehicle, you hear me? When I saw that he was about to say something, I added, shut your mouth now and drive. The driver gave me a look that was full of hatred. The possibility of his smashing in my face and losing his job was in the air. He considered it for a long moment. 
took a deep breath, turned around, shifted into first gear and drove. On the taxi's radio, Bobby McFerrin was singing, Don't worry, be happy. But I felt very far from happy. I looked at Lev. He wasn't crying. And even though we were stuck in a very slow-moving traffic jam, it wouldn't take long to reach my parents' house. I tried to find another ray of light in that unpleasant ride, but couldn't. I smiled at Lev and tussled his hair. He looked at me hard, but didn't smile back. Daddy asked, what did the man say? The man said, I answered quickly, as if it were nothing, that when you're riding in a car, you have to watch how you move your legs so you don't break anything. Lev nodded, looked out of the window, and a second later asked again, and what did you say to the man? Me, I said to Lev, trying to gain a little time. I told the man that he was absolutely right, but he, he should say what, whatever he has to say quietly and politely and not yell. But you yelled at him, Lev said, confused. <laughs> I know, I said, and that wasn't right. And you know what? I'm going to apologize now. I leaned forward so that my mouse almost touched the, the thick, hairy neck of the driver and said loudly, almost declaiming, Mr. Driver, I'm sorry I yelled at you. It wasn't right. When I finished, I looked at Lev and smiled again, or at least tried. I looked out of the window. We were just easing our way out of the traffic jam on Jabotinsky Street. The hard part was behind us. But Daddy Lev said, putting his tiny hand on my knee, now the man has to tell me he's sorry too. <laughs> I looked at the sweaty driver in front of us. It was clear to me that he was hearing our whole conversation. It was even clearer that asking him to apologize to a three-year-old wasn't really a good idea. The rope between us was stretched to the breaking point as it was. Sweetie, I said, bending down to Lev, you're a smart little boy and you already know lots of things about the world but not everything. And one of the things you still don't know is that saying you're sorry might be the hardest thing of all. And that doing something so hard while you're driving could be very, very dangerous. Because while you're trying to say you're sorry, you can have an accident. But you know what? I don't think we have to ask the driver to say, that he, to say he's sorry. Because just by looking at him, I can tell that he's sorry. We've already driven into Bialik Street. Now there was only the right turn into Nordro, and then a left to Bear Lane. In another minute, we'd be there. Daddy, Lev said as he narrowed his eyes, I can't tell that he's sorry. At that moment, in the middle of the incline of Nordro, the driver slammed on the brake again and pulled up the handbrake. He turned around and moved his face close to my son's. He didn't say anything, just looked Lev in the eye and a very long second later whispered, believe me, kid, I'm sorry. Uh, I love that story. And when I, so I asked you before to pick one that you wanted to read. Why that one? Be because I miss my son. It's, uh, it's really, it's funny, you know, how, how strange life is because I think that in a way you could say that this book is really about how much I love my family. And uh, I basically kind of published it in the world like about six months ago. And in these six months, I've been going to all kinds of countries saying to everybody how much I love my family. <laughs> and uh, my family stayed in Israel, like, you know, and, uh, and actually before coming here, my son said to me, you know, I know that your books all, all over the world, they love you. But I just want to say that I love you more, you know? So, so I wanted to read something about him, I guess, out of guilt and, <laughs> and m missing him, you know, so. He's learned how to tug on your heartstrings there. Yeah. <laughs> so the title of the book is, is Seven Good Years, uh, which to me, as somebody who grew up um, quite religious, immediately made me think of this uh, dream that Pharaoh has about seven fat cows and seven thin cows, and then um, uh, Joseph interprets this as meaning that there are seven good years coming and then seven years of famine. Is this what was in your mind when you're thinking about this book? Uh, yes, yes. I think that, you know, it's basically the seven years 
between giving birth to my son and losing my father. So it was those kind of seven years that I was part of a lineage of, like, you know, I was kind of sandwiched in a way. And it was something that I know that, uh, that uh, you know, my mother didn't have that because her parents died during the Holocaust. And my father lost his fa father in the, in the 50s. So he also wasn't in this kind of position to have both a father and a son. And the, the, sto the last story here in this book is ba basically is in, in one of the Gaza wars, there were so many of them that it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference. And, and you know, and the, this idea of, uh, I think that there was something about having my father that was kind of some kind of a, a, a buffer between me and the reality of living in Israel. Somehow I kind of like, you know, I said, you know, you know, the situation is really unbearable, and you know, and the, and the politically everything seems to be getting worse and worse, and and the the voice that kind of represent what I was thinking seemed to be getting further and further away from the Israeli mainstream since the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, and but somehow, as long as my father was alive, I kind of had this notion that one day, like. My dad will say, okay, enough, and he's going to fix it, you know, and he's going to kind of bring some kind of peace to the Middle East, and he's going to kind of fight for freedom of speech. And, it, you know, when you have your dad around, you know that, you know, that the, he's kind of let, he's letting things happen, but there is some kind of a responsible adult watching it. And I must say that the experience of going through that war without my father suddenly... I was kind of supposed to be that responsible adult. I was supposed to have this kind of burden. I was supposed to, to say to my son that you know, that he that he has a good future. That uh, that you know that in the next eight years or so there won't be another four wars, and that when he'll join the army, he won't find himself in the same mess that you know that uh, that we've been fi finding ourselves. And you know and. I'm not saying that you know that necessarily they're gonna be like seven bad years, but I felt that, gonna, that the next seven years are gonna be much harder or more difficult, you know, at least for me. Mm. And your son was born in the middle of a terrorist attack. Yeah. Uh, so can you tell us something about how 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 that happened? Yeah. Well, well, it all began with the fact that my my wife, I keep. You know, in English, I keep doing this mistake. I, I bet it means something. Yeah, but uh, that, <laughs> that, uh, that my, my wife wanted to have a natural birth, and you can't have it in every uh, hospital. So w there is this hospital uh, close to Natania that you can have a nat natural birth. And uh, when we reached there, it was uh, uh, very, very strange because we reached the maternity ward, and, and she was in labor, and there was nobody there. It was like kind of a ghost hospital, and, and they, it took me some time to, to, to understand through one of the nurses that there was a terrorist attack, so all the doctors from the maternity ward, they, they went to take care of the wounded people who were in the ER, and, the, and basically my mission was to go and grab a doctor and get him. Uh, back, you know, so he can deliver, uh, help in delivering the, the baby, or at least, like, you know, take a, be, be there to, to, to see that things are going okay. And, uh, and by the time I, uh, I was able to get a doctor, then uh, my uh, wife's contraction stopped. And basically, it took her another something like 20 hours to have the child, and it was as if the kid said, like, you know, coming out doesn't seem like such a good idea. Like, I see what you guys are doing out there. Let me kind of, let me think this over, you know. And it was really like this kind of thing that it really felt that there was some kind of a natural process that was disrupted, you know. It's like, I don't, I don't know, but uh, so, so, uh, so I feel that, you know, that, that one of the, the, the hardest uh, roles, I think, in parenthood is that you're some kind of an interface between your child and reality. You're the kind of guy that's supposed to have the answers, the explanations, and the... And for me, like, since before my child's birth, I, I, I found myself, you know, like, I was happy that he couldn't speak because if he would ha 
ask me some questions, you know, I would, I'm not sure that I would have good answers <laughs> for him. And in a way, that's, that's the trajectory of the book. Fortunately, this is not the kind of book that I can spoil. So if I talk about the end, that doesn't spoil anything. No. Here you still are and, and, and you have your family. Uh, but there's, there's a kind of book ending where there's a, 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 an attack in the first story and an attack in the last story. I mean, I'm describing them as if they're, as if they're short stories because, of course, they have that, that taste that your, that your stories have of a kind of slight absurdity where you're bringing out the absurdity of life somehow. So, but I, where I'm trying to get to is, uh, the, can you tell us a little bit about the last story, which is called Pastrami, which seems to be about what you're talking about, being a buffer between your son and reality? Yes, you know, my son, at the age of nine and a half, had been through, I think, quite a few missile attacks, but this was... The, f the first one, and, and we, were, we were in a car, so, so what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to stop the car, you know, you hear the siren and you have something like, I don't know, 60 seconds or 40 seconds until the, the, the missile hit, hit the area. So if you're outside, you're supposed to go outside and kind of lie down on the side of the road. And, and we stopped the car and we kind of got out and and for us as adults, you know, it's kind of a drill, but my son didn't really understand so much what's going on. Uh, so, so my wife said to him, you gotta lie down on the, on the ground. And he, and he said, no. And he said to him, yeah, you got to. So he said, if it's not clean enough for me to eat from it, I won't lie on it. And what he meant was that the day before that, his popsicle fell, <laughs> and we didn't let him eat the popsicle after we fell because we said it's dirty. And I think that it was even almost a way of just kind of building an argument because, like, he was still bitter about the popsicle thing, you know. <laughs> and 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 the and the thing is that you know that you 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 kind of know that you have I don't know like twenty or thirty seconds to make him lie down, but you don't want to shout at him or you don't want to push him down. And, and, and my wife was already lying on the ground, so, so I said to him, do you know this game pastrami sandwich? And he said, no. And I said, well, it's really easy. Like, mommy is like a slice of bread and you're the pastrami and, and I, I lie on you and we, we're a sandwich together. And, and he said, okay. And he kind of, he lied on my, uh, my uh, wife's back, and I kind of lied on them, but kind of trying to get as little weight as I can on them. And it also kind of made sense because if something happens, then at least I'll be able to protect them. And, and he starts saying, wow, it's really nice. I like it. You know, it's warm, <laughs> it's cozy, it's fun, you know. And, the, and at some stage, like, you know, the, the, we have this kind of iron dome thing, so, so the iron dome thing, shut the missile, so there were like pieces of sharpness falling, but it was far from us, so it wasn't even like kind of totally scary, but it's, we waited for a bit, and then I saw that the other people who were lying down were getting up, and I said, okay, like, we can get up, and, and my son kind of helped me, like, he said, no, it's fun, it's nice, don't get up, like, you know, let's stay like this, you know, and it, and it kind of reached this kind of thing that the, that he made us kind of promise him that if there will be another attack, we'll play it again. And then he started getting stressed, maybe there will be no more attacks and <laughs> we'll never play it. So it was really kind of a, a pretty strange situation, but, uh, but uh, you know, I mean, there were enough attacks now, you know, he, when we have the last one, we, we didn't play anymore. He was too old for that. <laughs> it, what, what I think is so, one of the things that's so wonderful about your writing is you find a, a lightness in these very dark moments, but also there's a, there's a depth, you know, to, to the simplest story, there's a feeling of, oh, there's a much bigger event going on here. And, and you write in, in this book about both of your parents who are both Holocaust survivors and who are both in the, the different ways storytellers. Yes. And um, it, did you grow up with those stories that they were telling as, as a somehow... There was some story behind the story that they weren't letting on about. Yeah, well, you know, my parents, you know, because my mother uh, had uh, had lost uh, her parents during the wars, and then 
one of her most pleasant memories from them, from her childhood, was her telling her stories, bedtime stories. And because it was in the ghetto, so, so they didn't have any access to books, so they would make up those stories. And the, and the thing uh, uh, with my mom, that she kind of, that she, she read a lot of books, but, but she, we, basically children's books were almost not allowed into, in our home because for her, like kind of reading us to, from a book was like ordering a pizza, you know, it's like what a lazy parent does, you know, like <laughs> if you're a good parent, you tell a story like her parents did and, and, uh, and she would tell stories very easily, but, uh, but sometimes my father would have to tell stories and unlike my mother, he, he couldn't make them up, he would, could just tell stuff that had happened and, uh, and the amazing thing about my father's stories is that they were always uh, able to kind of take stories that, that you know, like I was five years old, in hindsight, the stories that it's the last thing you want to talk to a five-year-old about and still makes them kind of very humane and empathic. And, and like, you know, and all these stories, they were always, it always took place in a whole house, you know, and it was always like about <laughs> prostitutes and mafia guys, you know. <laughs> And it would have been a very happy time in his life. <laughs> yeah, well, well, my father, the thing is that, uh, that in '48 he, he tried to get to Israel, and it, Israel was under the British mandatory rule, and, and he was sent uh, to Cyprus. He was uh, deported to Cyprus. So, so uh, he was in the Irgun, which was an uh, underground who fought the British, and, and uh, his job was to buy uh, weapons from the Italian mafia. And because he didn't have any money, so they kind of made this arrangement that he could stay in a whorehouse that the mafia had owned. And, and, and for him, it was like a very, very happy period. No, really, just for the fact that he said to me it was the first time in his life that he didn't have to hide the fact that he was a Jew. So he could openly be a Jew. And when he, he would go to sleep, he said, I wouldn't kind of be scared. He said, like, you know, during the war, he never had a good sleep, you know, but here he could sleep well. And, and this idea was that his all introduction to the people around him was that basically they were much better people than, or it was a much better experience than what he'd known. So, so he felt kind of very okay telling me those stories. And, but of course, when I would ask him, you know, what's a mafia person? And he would say, these are people who, who collect rent from buildings that they don't own or What's prostitute? You know, it's, this is somebody whose job is to listen to other people's problems. You know, <laughs> and uh, <coughs> so. But 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 the thing was that the effect of those stories was that what I kind of understood about storytelling. Storytelling is is these things that you talk about things that are very very difficult. You know, and you don't lie. You talk about them, but you talk about them in a way that is compassionate. It makes them kind. It, that the role of storytelling is to humanize life around you and to take all those kind of things that are so arbitrary and intimidating and make them into something that is uh, acceptable and bearable, you know? So when I write, I, I think I try to uh, reconciliate with life, you know? It's, I, 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 I actually, one of the latest stories, uh, fiction stories that I wrote kind of began with the situation in which, uh, in which I read a piece in Israel, written by, by somebody, and the piece annoyed me in such levels, like, you know, that I kept kind of ranting about it to my wife, and I say, you know, wow, like, you know, saying horrible and critical thing about the person who had written them. What was the piece? Uh, if I tell that, maybe you could figure out who oh. that person was, but, <laughs> but, but the bottom line of it was that uh, in the end, I, like, I disliked this kind of sentiment in myself so much that I said, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a story and the protagonist is going to be the person who wrote this piece, you know? And I, the, because the thing is that the moment that you write something, it may come out crap, but, but it kind of forces you not to alienate yourself from a human being. It, it forces you to humanize that person. And in the end, it's actually, it's, it's a nice story. Like, but, but, but it came out as a nice story. But what happened was, the effect was when I finished the story, I couldn't feel the same thing about 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 people because because I think that that's the things that you know that, that I, I always say about about writings that uh, that writing uh, it kind of it's like going to the gym and training that the muscle of empathy you know it's basically because I'm saying I don't know like let's say we go in, a, in we drive a car and then somebody 
cuts us and we kind of say to him, how, do you do, how are you driving, you, you assholes? Where, where, did you, where did you get your license in? Sainsbury, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then imagine this guy stopping and says, no, no, actually, I, I'm actually a good driver. He just, he just told me that uh, uh, my sister has can terminal cancer and I was thinking about her children being left as orphans, so I didn't think about when I switched lanes. And then we say, Ah, oh, oh, we're really so sorry. We talked to you about this way. I'm sorry. But, but the idea is that this doesn't happen because when we curse people on the street, you know, we don't know their life. We don't know anything. We, they're just like we're living this movie in which we are like the stars and there are those extras who get in our way and who take our parking and who kind of stand in front of us in the queue and look for change. You know, there are those kind of annoying nuisances, but we tend to forget it at the same time. They are the stars of another movie, you know, and and I think that there is something about about writing that kind of that kind of help us understand that, that there is a different point of view that things can be seen from from another angle. So so for me, writing was always kind of a way of uh, of uh, humanizing, you know. I mean I mean I kind of I you know when I see a, a let's say I don't know a Lars von Trier film, like I can recognize the fact that he's super talented person and he's very smart. But I say to myself, like, you know, if I want to enforce in myself the feelings that people are assholes, then, then why bother, you know, go and movie or read a book, you know, I just go down to the street and wait for 10 minutes and, <laughs> and it's going to happen, you know. I, I, I want to go to art to kind of remind myself that there is another layer, that, that there is something underneath there, that, that nobody is was born or gonna die a bad guy, you know, just carrying their narrative and their pain and their fears and, and that the, out, the outcome could be very, very destructive, but, uh, but that in the bottom line, it's, it's human. There are so many different ways that I want to go from that. But one thing is, what you were just saying really reminds me of um, the Breslov Hasidim and this idea of the breaking your heart meditation that, that, you, that you should... The reason I bring it up is because your sister is, is Breslov. Yeah. Um, having having grown up secular, she's become Breslov, and and there's that similar idea about working in your feelings and your thoughts about other people until your heart cracks open, and that that's when God enters in. And I don't know if I have a question in there, except for um, maybe how how you relate to your sister and and her religion. I, I always say that you know that there are so many different sects in religion. And the thing about the Breslau people is that the biggest uh, mitzvah, how do you say that in yeah, English? I, I don't think there's a word for that in English, mitzvah. Like, it's like a combination of a good deed and a commandment. So the, the, so the biggest good deed and commandment that you could do is be happy. So I say, like, you know, some, some religion, the biggest good thing and commandment you could do is they cut somebody's head off. So, so I'm saying that to be happy... I think it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of, it's a good choice, you know, and it's, it's fun too. And I've been to her house when a water pipe broke and, you know, and like, you know, I was thinking like, how am I going to fix that? But while I was doing it, my sister was taking all her children and they were dancing around it, <laughs> singing, you know, uh, uh, mine, <laughs> mine, yeah, yeah, like they were like <laughs> making a nice thing out of it. But, but what I wanted to say about, about this kind of, this kind of idea of, of the difference between a, a perceiving life, you know, from from different perspectives, is that I, I'm not sure it's totally connected. But I just uh, it's uh, uh, one thing that, is that when I want to kind of show off about is I'm considered like one of the uh, most, or if not the most, uh, uh, popular writer in a, in a, among Israeli convicts. And I think the most reason for that is that they have short tension span, and my stories are very, very short. And 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 there was a time like it doesn't happen so much, but they would ask me to to come and give talks in a, in prisons. One time I was invited to this kind of maximum security ward, where basically like everybody there is a, usually a murderer, you know, and they. And they, I remember that before the event, they, they gave me this briefing. So the, the jailer, one of the jailers said to me, like, distance was a little bit further than we have it here. So it, the guy said to me, so you're going to read and talk and everything. <laughs> but if at uh, uh, some uh, stage you see one of the people getting up, 
just cover your face and bend <laughs> forward. He said to me, I promise you, we're going to get him before he even touches you, you know, which was very reassuring, you know, to start, to start reading. Because, you know, usually when you really say, what am I going to read? And, and before this reading, I say, I really want to read something that you're going to like, you know. I, I really don't want, don't want to get anybody angry at this specific reading. And I did a reading, and they were very, very polite and very nice and asked beautiful questions. And when the reading ended, kind of, I said to them, okay, thank you, goodbye. And I said, could, could you please uh, uh, keep talking to us? And I said to them, why is it like, do you really like the stuff I'm talking about? And they say, yeah, that too, but, but you, you must understand that the moment that you're going to leave, they're going to return us to the cell, ourselves, and some of us will go to solitary confinement. So... So the longer we're here, we kind of we get to hang out together. And I said to them, sure, you know, so I can stay here more, but I'm not sure I have anything more to say. How about you tell me stuff? And uh, it reached these kind of things that they talked me, to me about what they're doing every day. And, and one of the things that they had at, at the time, it was a long time ago, they were allowed the, a, one, a one film each week. And I asked them which film that they, which film they picked. And, and basically... They went kind of four weeks back, and all of the movies that they picked were from the Dirty Harry series. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, like, you know, like, uh, like Dirty Harry, and Dirty Harry strikes again, and Dirty Harry is back and he's really angry. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I said to them, wow, you really love those movies? And they said yes. And I said to them, like, when you see those movies, it's about basically a, a cop going on a vendetta, killing uh, criminals, and who do you root for? Yeah. And they said, well, Dirty Harry, you know, Clint Eastwood. And I said to them, but, uh, you know, but you criminals, like in the movie, he's basically killing people like you. And, and one of the guys said, he's not killing anybody like me. And he said, it's not as if, it's not, I'm not saying that they didn't stab that guy with a screwdriver 25 times, but, but the way that he spoke to me, like, if I would have a fair judge, I would already be out. Like, you would have done the same. But, but those guys in the movie, they're murderers, you know? <laughs> and, and I think that there is this kind of thing in the, 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 our, the, the kind of narratives that we build, the perspectives that we, we build. So, so much of it is kind of focused on the fact that telling us that we're the good guys. And, the, and I really think that the, that the, the best and most moral literature is the one that leads us into territories of ambiguity. You know, I mean, when you see Star Wars, like, you know, everybody feels he's the Luke Skywalker. You know, it doesn't matter, like, again, you know, if you're a... If you're a, 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 a it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, you could be a, a terrorist, you could be a, a freedom fighter, you could be whoever you want. You always say, I'm this guy. You know, I want this guy to win, but... But when you read Crime and Punishment, you know, and you, you like this guy, and he's so much like you, but he's killing a woman, basically you say, wow, you know, maybe I could kill a woman too, you know, so it, it, so it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Puts you in a much more a moral place, and I think that, th that this is basically what we do through literature. Mm. It makes me want to ask about that. I, I know there's a... There's a really interesting but also difficult story about how you became a writer, really, that, that it, it almost happened to you in, in one moment or one, like, a few days. Um, yeah. And would, do you feel okay to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, well, I, 
I can I can very briefly talk about the sad part and then very quickly. Yes, more talk about the joyful part. Yeah, part, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, so I was again I was a very bad soldier. I always like to say that I come from lineage of bad soldiers and the and my my brother is the only soldier in the history of the IDF that was put on trial, found guilty, and was sent to jail for practicing paganism. <laughs> and he, it was like during the Lebanon War, they let him guard an aerial antenna, and when, and a few weeks later, when they came to kind of relieve him from his duty, he they discovered that he turned the antenna into a huge Indian totem with the face of an eagle. <laughs> and, and in his trial, his commanding officer said that he saw my brother worshipping the antenna. <laughs> and my brother... So my brother said that he was just tying his shoelaces and that he was not bowing to the antenna <laughs> and that he did it just because he was bored, but they, they didn't believe him and he went to jail for that. And again, you know, I was like a real bad soldier and, and basically I, my best friend uh, who was serving in a com computer unit, he was able to convince his commanders that I'm, I'm a computer genius <laughs> and I didn't do, know anything about computers, but he was able to kind of we kind of, I had to take this test and we kind of cheated the test because he was able to do the test for me and they transferred me to that unit and they, we served in it together and he got really depressed during the army service and he killed himself and, they, and basically I found him, uh, I found him uh, not dead, even dying and, uh, and he died later and, and I think that like, the first story I wrote was the first time I had to take another shift in this room I don't remember what's, what's the fun <laughs> part. <laughs> no. is that you wrote a story called Pipes, yeah. um, which, is, which is somehow exactly what you were talking about in, in terms of turning something unreconcilable into something beautiful. Um, so the story Pipes is about a man who finds the world very difficult, but manages. he works in a pipe factory, and he manages to create this pipe, this arrangement where he can drop marbles through it and they don't come out the other end. So he knows that he's like found a way into some other world. And then he makes one big enough for himself to crawl into. And, and it seems that you're talking about writing there. Somehow. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think, I think that this was what writing was for me. It was kind of this idea that... I think that what I was trying to say to myself, kind of building some kind of argument why... I'm not committing suicide myself, was that I, my life wasn't good, but that it was up to me to find a way to kind of find a route to a place where it would make sense, you know. And I think that there was something about, uh, before even writing, the idea of storytelling, I think that storytelling was always this kind of idea that you take something that is arbitrary and makes no sense and turn it into something that suddenly made sense. Mm. And it, it, as, as you're talking, I mean, obviously, the, the Israel as a country has a particular meaning, I think, in, in, in the world outside and in Europe, uh, so that every somehow Israeli story or Israeli writer is, is, is somehow part of that, what is Israel and what is the role of Israel? Um, and then, I mean, obviously... <laughs> You know, you write, you write stories, but every single one, do you feel that every single one is, is somehow freighted with that meaning? Well, I must say that I'm somebody who's like kind of a very uh, stressful and whenever like I'm, I'm with another person or in public, I always think about what everything I say, what does it mean and what insinuations it has and stuff. And, uh, but when I write, I really don't think about that. There is something I think there is kind of a release from that, you know, I... You know, when, when I talk to my student, I always say, you know, the amazing thing about a book is that it has no, you can't do nothing, like you can't cook an egg on it, you can't <laughs> cut a salad with it, you can't defend yourself with it. It's, it's the fact that it's kind of, it has no function makes it almost omnipotent. And that's what I think that, you know, that for me, like, there is something about writing that it's kind of a place of sincerity eh, where you really... Uh, you don't have to. You don't ha have to assume any responsibility. You don't really have to think about how it affects life, and this is why I really love so much writing fiction, 
and why I hate so much writing op-eds, you know, <laughs> because there's something about, about writing is that when you write, you basically, you know, you, you, you just say, you know what, like, I want to share with you uh, my confusion, all those ambiguities, the difficulties. And when you write op-eds, it basically, usually the, the, the subjects be, between it, under it, adenicity is that you pretend that yeah. you know things mm -hmm. and that you have, you try to construct things in a way that you know that is basically more reductive than the way that life is. And, and I must say that, you know, when I, when I write, I feel like, you know, I'm floating in air. When I write an op-ed, I feel like I'm washing the dishes, you know, it's really, it's feel like, I feel almost kind of like a, a that you taint something that, that you love. And, and at the same time, you know, sometimes, like I'm, I, I say to myself, like, I would rather do something else to, to try and change the situations and write, especially because I don't really believe that, you know, that writing those things has such a huge effect, mm. but I don't know how to do anything else. And, and I must say that, you know, that when I, when, when, when I write those op-eds, you know, I feel uh, it, it's... We should say, sorry, that in, yeah, in, the, ah, UK, oh, sorry. in the UK, it's, called, it's, called, it's an opinion piece, an op-ed, an op opinion editorial type thing. So when I write things about the political issues or against the government or things like that, so when I write those things, I think that they, they, I always have this image, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I went to see a, a one bird flew over the cocoa nest. And there is a scene so where Jack Nicholson says to the other inmates, you know, uh, they're like in a mental ward, and he says to them, they, they have this kind of, a, you call it a cooler, the thing that you drink water from. Yeah, 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 like a water fountain. A water yeah. fountain. And he says to them, they, they have this big glass wall, and he says, I'm going to lift the water fountain, throw it on the wall, I'm going to break it, and we're all going to run out, you know, because they never try to escape this place. And they all kind of gather around him, and he tries to lift the water fountain, and he can't move it. And he tries, and you see, he tries really hard, and it doesn't even budge, you know. And all the inmates, they, they, like, they start laughing at him, and he gets really frustrated, and he says to them, you know what's the difference between you and me? At least I tried, you know. And I think that when, when my feeling when I write opinion pieces is really like, like Jack Nicholson trying to lift this water fountain, like saying, deep inside I know that, you know, that the chances that it's going to have any effect whatsoever is really, really so tiny, but at the same time, it's important to try, you know. Yeah. I think, it, I must say that it's something that, uh, that resonated me much more since I became a father, because I want my son yeah. also to try, you know, so. There, there are so many wonderful um, places in this book where you come back to this theme of being between two things. So there's, your, there's Pastrami, and there you are between the, the birth of your son and, and the death of your father. And there's this one incredibly wonderful, very concrete manifestation of that, which is somebody has built a house for you in Poland. Can you tell us about the house that has been built for you in Poland and what... Yeah, it's really strange. It's a, I got a phone call from a guy who spoke in a very heavy poly... Uh, a Polish accent, and it was like it was so heavy that it sounded like you know when I, I was young, we had in Israel we, the, the show uh, Faulty Towers, mm -hmm. and there was this guy who, who said, "I'm Miguel, I come from Barcelona," you know. So, <laughs> so it's basically like it doesn't sound like somebody who has a Spanish accent. It sounds like somebody who does something that is ridiculously exaggerated. So when he talked to me, and he said to me that he lived in Warsaw and that he's an architect and that he went in the street and he saw a gap between two buildings and the gap had told him to build me a house and everything was this in this kind of Miguel Warsaw version. I said, okay, like, you know, like, like I said, like, maybe somebody thinks it's funny, but I don't really understand. I don't get this joke, you know? And, I, and so I said to him, you know what? Always do what the gap tell, tells you. If it tells you to build me a house, build a house, don't, don't mess with the gap, you know? And I kind of <laughs> hung up on him. And he later came to Israel because he had a feeling that I didn't take him too seriously. <laughs> and he was very serious about it. He was really, he wanted to build me a house in the proportion of my stories, meaning that it would be completely minimalistic, but at the same time totally functional. And he built a house that, uh, it's the narrowest house in the world. It's like, <laughs> it's in the Guinness Book of Record. What I, 
I discovered that when, because my mother is Polish, I showed her the place because they do these kind of computer things that, you know, that they show you how it's going to look like. And when I showed it to her and my mother basically left Poland in 45, you know, she could tell me the name of the street. And I said to her, how can you do that? And she told me that when she was a child in the beginning of the war, she was in the Warsaw Ghetto. And, and there was this kind of a, a bridge between the small ghetto and big ghetto. And whenever she would try to smuggle food into the ghetto, she would be detained there by, by the Nazis. And she said that the Nazis had this kind of strategy that they would just make people wait because they felt that people who would be hiding something, they would get, get stressed. So you could see the stress on them, and especially on children. And that she had this strategy that when she was waiting, not to think about the fact that if they would k- catch her, they'd kill her. You know, she was, she was basically like six or seven years old at the time. Then that she would look at all the buildings and remember all the windows and everything, like memorize the entire street. And she said, this, the gap is really between the buildings in the street where I would stand and wait, you know, to be, to be checked, you know. So, so it was, and it was really, for my mother, this building was really, really important because the building is called the Carrot House. And, and my mother always said that her legacy to her father was that her father basically ordered her to stay alive because he said, I don't want the, the Germans to be able to kind of wipe out our memory, you know, from this land. I don't want that people when we go to the streets, they would never know that we had lived here. And for her kind of having a building with our family name, you know, it's not her father's family name, but our family name was kind of, she said like, I'm sure that the, if my father can see it now, that he's smiling, you know, that it kind of gave her some sensation of closure. Mm. The the guy wasn't wrong. The Gap really did talk to him. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And there's some feeling that, like, a a book is something like that. It's a Gap that talks. It's just, it's open to space up. Well, I think, you know, let's say a a book or writing, it has so many, so many functions, you know. It's really, I think it's infinite. It's, it's a... uh, you know, it, it can, it, for me, it's a place where you can be sincere at because, you know, because there are no consequences, you know, because it's not real, so you can tell the truth. So it's a, it's a way of kind of fighting loneliness, you know, it's a way of kind of enlarging your, your life, kind of, you know, being able to, to live more than one life, being able to go to many places. There are so many things that the book can offer you, you know. So I think that almost... Any positive metaphor I can think of is also true about <laughs> books and writing. I'm sure that is true. So we only have a few minutes left, and I'm going to ask for questions. And whilst you are thinking about questions, because it often takes a moment for everyone to see if they might have a question, I wanted to ask you about your writing process, and particularly, well, all the pieces that you write, which have a, they have such a feeling of completion in each one that I imagine that you just sit there and you write each one and it is exactly how it comes out but maybe that's just me being a little bit romantic about how writing sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't but but I think that for me it's important when you write something that you don't really know exactly what you're doing because I think that 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 uh, for me you know I write mostly short text and you know and, and I think that short text is a uh, I I write them they're, they're much more kind of let's say tone based mm-hmm. than plot based so I, I kind of I try to find the right voice and, and I just kind of wait for the story to kind of present itself you know I my my, my metaphor for it is I think it's a it's like a trust falls you know sometimes when when they do it in couple treatments. They ask the, the two people to close their eyes and fall back and trust yeah. the partner to catch them. So for me, writing is this kind of trustful, mm-hmm. and you say, you know what, I'm going to fall back, and the story is going to catch me. It's kind of it's going to reach some closure. Something's going to happen, and I think that the, this is the for me it's the only way worth writing because I the truth, the truth is that because if you write this way and many times it doesn't work you know you just kind of wake up with a bump in the back of your head <laughs> and three pages don't make any sense but but when it does it's it's the only way I know 
is that you can write a story that is smarter than you. Yeah. And yeah. I'm saying, and to, to be honest, like, like, you know, to write a story that is as smart as I am, it's not good enough. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not smart, like, you know, yeah. like, I mean, we can put New York Times quote on the back of the cover, but, but I'm saying it, to write a story that I figured out and I tinker with it and I build it the same way that you build the clock. I know people, I actually personally know I won't name them, that when they do that, it comes out good enough. When I do that, it's not good enough. I have to, have to, I need this kind of backwind from the story. I need the story to take me to a place that I, I wouldn't have been mm. able to kind of consciously mm. aim for. It's a turning something off somehow, like, ter- like letting, letting something be free that is usually reined in. Yeah, it's, 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 I feel that, I feel that there, is a, that there is something about about the kind of ways that I write is basically my consciousness can take me only this far. Mm. And then you need to have this kind of leap of faith. You need to have something from the unconscious to kind of yeah. give you this extra push and take you to this place that, that you could have never figured it out, but you just kind of happen to get there. Mm. You've made me think, by the way, when you were talking about writing something that will make you feel more compassionate to people, I've had for years the thought that I would start a story trying to write as if I were one of those internet trolls who like just goes and is horrible to people online. But then I didn't want to write it because I didn't know where it was going. So now I'm just going to give it a go. We'll see what happens. Like if I, I'll let you know if I get a bump on the head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I think it's, I think it's it's really really interesting. But I think again, you know, the, it's always it's it's tricky because I think many times let's say if you say I I'm go I want to figure out how this guy thinks. Mm. You you're never gonna make yeah. it. The only way you're gonna make it is if you find something in you mm. that is like this person. It's like you know I have this story uh, called the best intentions, and it's a story about a, a hired killer. Mm. You know, and uh, and you know and. It was important for me that the the protagonist would be a hired killer, but but I wanted to write a hired killer, and you know I'm kind of vegetarian since the age of five because I saw Bambi. You know I'm kind <laughs> of like there's not much of a hired killer in me. Like you know <laughs> if you have to write a wimpy pussy kind of kid, you know I can easily do that. But <laughs> but a hired killer is not kind of my forte. You know so 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 the the first paragraph in the in the book in the story is basically about how this guy he goes and when he gets a, a job you know a hit he gets the they leave him this envelope in a locker and he says i hold the envelope in my hand and before i know it i know there'll be a photo of it and before i see the photo i know that this person is dead and it doesn't matter it could be a cute kid he could be like a uh, this kind of a glowing woman with an uh, elderly woman with blue hair, the dead. And he says, the reason I know it is that because if I let allow myself open the envelope and say, no, this guy, I can't kill this guy. It means that I say this guy does not deserve to die. And nobody deserves to die. So you either kill them all or you don't do it. Mm. And the reason that I picked this as the first paragraph is this is my attitude toward publishing fiction. <laughs> because when I write a story and I say, you know what, my aunt is going to hate it, you know, or this guy's not going to talk to me, then I say to myself, you know, I can be like, you know, as, a, as a slick as I can be in real life. But when you write a story, you either, if you ask yourself, if it's good, you publish it. If it's not good, you don't publish it. So... So it was very easy for me to kind of get into the persona of the hired killer by using these things that is so much me. And in a way, it's ruthless, it's merciless. It doesn't see the other. When I publish a story, I say, you know, I can hurt somebody. Mm. But I say, you know, I don't care. So this kind of I don't care is the I don't care of a guy who kills somebody. It's the I don't care not of somebody who doesn't have an emotion, but somebody says, I have to block it or it will take over me. Mm. And the... And I'm saying so just when you try to write this troll, it's really, really, like, I mean, it's really, uh, I'm sorry, it's okay that uh, people want to ask questions, it's okay? I I think it's fine that you're talking, I think, yeah. And particularly since you're giving me advice about something I'm going to write. Yeah, yeah, so, so, well, well, the truth is that, you know, many times kind of really, like, I think the, the... Times that I think I feel most useful is when I when I can tell myself that I'm giving people advice about writing, you know. So, 
So I have this story called teamwork, and, and I, I think I read it in Berkeley, you know, and the, this woman kind of stood up uh, after the reading, and it's, it's basically a story about a separated the couple, you know, that, you know, that the, 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 the father gets very little chance to, to see his uh, son, and that he's involved in a situation where he took his son to a playground, and allegedly there was an older girl who pinched his son or hurt him and that he pushed her and she hurt her head and, and now his ex-wife says, you're, not, you're gonna lose your visitation right because you're violent to children. And he says that he didn't do it, but it's obvious that he did. And, uh, and she said to me, I really love uh, how inventive you are. Like, how could you kind of make up this kind of character that, that kind of, that would beat up a girl in a playground, and how can you kind of make up that kind of character? And I said to her, I'm not making it up, it's me. <laughs> because when I go, go with my kid and I see another kid kind of bullying him a little, then basically my first instinct is to go to that kid, you know, you know when my son was in a younger age, and you know, say, is it just the right height? You just kick them in, how do you call it? In the chin, <laughs> in the chin you know? Yeah. And I say, how does it feel? How does it feel when somebody bigger than you kind of beat the shit out of you, huh? <laughs> and, and you know, and it's like the second, and then you say, whoa, like he's a kid, you know? He doesn't mean anything, what are you thinking? And then you let go of it, but when you write a story, you say, no, I'm gonna stay there, I'm gonna be there. But it's important that always when you do it, you, you, it, it, it has to be you. So I'm saying, so, so, so if I go down the street and I see, somebody going, walking with a cane, and I have this urge to kick the cane, you know? And it's like, it's just like half a second long. And I, I don't want to see the guy getting hurt, but you just see the cane and say, no, just go like this, you know, just feel like, yeah. and you, you, you kind of leave this thought behind. Yeah. Then when you write a story, it's basically you kind of, you delve into it, and, and, and it's important that you don't try to beat up somebody and kind of figuring him out is that you find something in you and from that you write the guy. This is great. I, 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 I have it already. Like that thing of myself where there are particular kinds of people that I see them being happy and I want to be able to take their happiness away. You and feel that you don't deserve their yeah, happiness. Yeah, they don't deserve it. Yeah, and they're kind of throwing it in your face. And so, yeah, just grab it from them. Which I, I never do, but that's why you write. But, 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 <laughs> but, but, but you know what, what I can tell you about Rose and I must say that, you know, like, you know, during the last Gaza war, I, I, I had my share of trolls, mm. you know, who, you know, who wished me death and whatever. If you think about a troll, they don't go and do it to everybody everywhere. They just do it to the people that they think that ha have it coming. Yeah. You know, they, they, they really, like, I mean, they're very, very systematic. They, they, they're, not, uh, they're not mass murderers. They just go to those places and they say, this guy... Yeah. I'm going to make him cry. You know, I'm going to ruin his day. This guy, you yeah. know, so... Yeah. No, it's great. I can't... I, I found something so personal I can't tell any of you. Okay. But, I'm <laughs> but you write a story and, yeah. but, and then we'll see the story. And that's, yeah. that's the beautiful thing because when we see the story, you know, this person thing, we won't know this person thing. We just know the, the emotion but without any context. So you reveal everything but tell us nothing at the same time. And that's... Yeah. What's so fun about writing? You know what's gonna. I know I'm gonna send it to you now. That's what's Great. gonna happen. Yeah. I want to read it. <laughs> okay. So, do we have questions? Because I think we're a little bit over time. No, they just want to listen to me. Hi, So lovely to listen to you, Edgar, talking about your family as a kind of creative inspiration. Uh, at the same time, you're talking about a kind of authority that kind of almost gives space for ambiguity. It's very different from being a parent. So I just wonder whether, what effect kind of being this different authority, being a parent, has had on your fiction? Yeah, well, I, 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 must, say, I must say that, you know, that uh, uh, all my life, I always kind of find myself returning to the theme of writing a, a, a parent-child relationship stories. And it's amazing that how really, like, at really this specific point when I became a father, then I stopped writing those stories from a child point of view and I started mm -hmm. writing them from a parent point of view. It's all like, 
it's as if before I became a father, all, all my empathy was with the child, you know? And the moment, and the moment I became a parent, I re realized how difficult it is to be on that <laughs> other side of the fence, you know? It's, it's really, it's really, because for me, like, all the time it was like kind of this child, and there, there are those obstacles around him. Like, you're a kid, you know? You, you want to, I don't know, you, you want to play, and then your parents say you have to come and eat or shower, and you want to play, and they don't let you play. Because there is something about, you know, it's really, I, in, because most people really think that I don't have a job, you know, being a writer, then always say, when my, my son is, was in kindergarten school, and like I kind of get along good with children, then always when they needed an extra parent to help, they would always take me there. And it's amazing how a life of children has so many similarities to life of a, a convict in jail. Basically, they really they put them in those kind of spaces. They don't want to be there. They intimidate them. They really like you know. They have this kind of. They walk in the yard. You know. You really. You really see. And 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 you really like. I really empathize with them. This this ability. Like you know. I mean. I mean, the difference between a child and a grown-up that the thing... Imagine us as grown-up when somebody forces us to wash our hair, you know? And when somebody forces us to go to some place we don't want to, it's not the same as if we go to work even if we don't... We can quit our work, but it's not like a parent saying you have to do that. So I, I was very much connected to this, this kind of feeling, but, but suddenly kind of, kind of understood what, what, how it looks from the general point of view, how difficult it is to to be this interpreter of a reality that you don't really understand, but at the same time, you know, you have to be authoritative about it. But I can tell you really that, that I don't think that, that becoming a parent made me a better person, but for sure it, it made me want to try to become a better person. <laughs> I think, you know, the, the, the piece that I wrote about the taxi, you know, this idea is that, that I think that, that, uh, that really nonfiction kind of, Documents this, this this really feeling that that when you're a child and there is somebody who watches you and uh, I was uh, I was saying in, in an interview that that when my my son was was a little bit older it was after this after this uh, uh, taxi incident where I said you know I'm never going to shout at anybody when my son is watching me I'm never going to do it again but I was in in uh, Cyprus. And we went to a restaurant, and they really treated us really, really bad. And I started kind of a, a, a asking the the waiter to 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 kind of assume responsibility for the fact that they were bad. And he kind of refused, and I kind of insulted him. And I asked to talk to his manager, and the manager came, and I kind of insulted the manager, which was really like it was kind of horrible, you know. And it, it ended with the manager said, "You know what? We were wrong. I apologize." As a token of what we did wrong, I uh, bring you a cake. And my son was sitting there, and he was eating the cake, and he said, Father, why don't we do it every time? You know, <laughs> you know when we go to a restaurant, you should just insult them, and they give you cake. And <laughs> all those times, we missed it. You know, we were just nice. And, and you realize, you know, the implication of, of, of the ways that you act on your life. And, and then you say, I can I can't fake it only when I'm next to my child. So if I don't want him to see that, I have to stop being that, you know. Um, I'm Anna, and coincidentally, I'm from Warsaw as well. Um, I know that you're friends with Ira Glass, who's an American, let's say, I don't know, reporter. He has an amazing show called This American Life. And I just wonder... When you guys hang out, what do you talk about? Like people who tell amazing stories, what do they talk about in their free time? Do you <laughs> tell each other stories or not enough of that? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Ira Glass and the show. And, and basically, I, I've yet to meet any human being in the world who really understand stories and storytelling the same way Ira does, you know, he really, there's something about him that kind of like, that when he, he makes a story, he's not an editor, you know, because most of the stories that he does are nonfiction. He basically, it's like, it's like those kind of people that they know how to fold papers or do origami or thing. He like says, ah, okay, so this is how the story should be like, and suddenly <laughs> it kind of works. 
And, uh, and I want to say that, that, that I, I try to figure out what makes him so amazing at what he does. And I think that the, 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 his strongest force is really is the genuine curiosity. You know, is I, think, I think that whenever he does a story, he's so interested, he's so engulfed in it, he so wants to kind of know where it's going that it's really, really amazing. And the, and the thing with Minaira is that uh, I don't even know what we're talking about, but, but whenever, I feel that whenever we're together, we have this mutual feeling that it's not enough time, you know, that we could sit together for three hours, for four hours, for five hours. But it, and, and, it, and you know, and it's very, I feel very much with him that it, we have this kind of friendship that children have, <laughs> have. Like, he says, I want to show you this, this clip from YouTube. And I say, wow, this is amazing. Oh, you know, I, you know I, I, here's this idea for a story I have. He says, ah, I don't get it, you know. <laughs> uh, and he says, uh, you know, my dog beat somebody. You want me to show you a photo of the dog? You know, it's really like sometimes, like it's like sometimes it feels like two uh, retarded kids, you know, <laughs> trying to kind of communicate. But but I think that but I think that the thing that is more dominant, it's not that we have any words of wisdom. It's this kind of f pure excitement that we meet so somebody who's as excited about life as we are, you know. So that the, I think that there are many things that really that I, I show him that I would feel embarrassed to show other people because he would say, so what, you know? And I know that he'll never, he'll never say so what because everything that you put there is kind of like a way of talking about something that is interesting. And there is something that when you were with him that life looks more ex exciting and more worth living. You know, the moment that he leaves the room, then I say, ah, okay. <laughs> You know, but uh, he's really an amazing person and his show is really, really amazing. We are out of time. Thank you so much. And uh, yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 